the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents HBCUs, HSIs, and TSUs. How do we partner for greater research opportunities? A professional development seminar. Featuring Great Minds in STEM representatives, Director Bertha Haro and Dr. Juan Rivera. Chief of Workforce Strategy and Data Intelligence for the U.S. Air Force, Brian Stevens. Program Director for the National Science Foundation, Dr. Talitha Washington. And Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow from the Office of Senator Jackie Rosen, Alexandra Lang. There are over 700 institutions in the United States which are designated as minority-serving institutions, which serve a broad demographic across the nation. According to recent reports, they graduate more undergraduates in the STEM disciplines than majority institutions. For example, HBCUs comprise only 3% of the engineering departments across the country, but graduate 30% of the nation's black engineers at the undergraduate level. Hispanic-serving institutions are also increasing as the Latino population continues to grow. Tribal colleges and universities are seeking to empower their students with the skills that will serve their communities to decrease both economic and health disparities. There are programs at the federal level which fund research as it relates to these MSIs. But what if we were to broaden the dialogue and start to work together? Could we forge alliances among various institutions to create greater synergies in sponsored research, leading to outcomes that enrich our communities and unite us as a nation? Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents HBCUs, HSIs, and TSUs. How do we partner for greater research opportunities? Featuring Bertha Haro, Dr. Juan Rivera, Brian Stevens, Dr. Talitha Washington, and Alexandra Lang. Yeah, so you started with, um, we were back in 1995. I remember 1995, I was doing a semester abroad in Mexico <laughs> as a mathematics major, and I had to, I had to literally um, wait for to get a new department chair to let me go. It was not one of those things that people did back in the day, S send your STEM students abroad. Now, you know, it's we're all global, we want to do it. That to say that um, sometimes the young folks, I think, I think I did, I'm not sure, maybe I got lucky, but young folks see things in the future, they th see things that um, are needed skills for things that don't exist yet, things that could be valuable. So to let the young folks kind of, uh, follow their passions, learn what they can do. And it's also good to learn what you can't do yet because it's always yet. It's, um, I, I think it's great. And also providing experiential learning opportunities uh, for students where they could actually experience um, STEM versus regurgitate in, in a way that they can take ownership that this is mine. I can form an identity around what it means to be a STEM person. Because for me personally, becoming a mathematician, I remember getting a PhD and I was like, I guess I'm a mathematician now. I, I really kind of had to wrap my head around what does it really mean to be a mathematician? Because I didn't see many people like me 
or maybe people I wanted to be like that were mathematicians. So how do you form that STEM identity where this is me, this is just something that I do. It doesn't need to be somebody, something that somebody else does. So providing those experiential learning for young people and letting them follow their own passions, even if it doesn't make sense, I think are some really good ways to go. Thank you. Dr. DiVetta? This topic actually has been on my mind quite a bit. Um, when I was uh, developing technologies, we would go through an exercise called future back. You anticipate the future, what you try to predict, uh, what the future might be, and in my case, in, in technologies. And then I would ask myself, what do I need to invest today to be on the path towards that future? So I try to apply that to um, building the nation's STEM workforce. What do I see in the future for the STEM workforce? What do college students need to become STEM professionals? And then what do the high school students need to select and succeed in their STEM majors in colleges? And then all the way back to elementary school. And what I've been able to identify are weaknesses at, at various steps along that path, in particular for um, predominantly minority um, populated elementary schools. And it worries me because that level is the foundation. And that if, if our kids fail at the elementary school level in science and mathematics, they will certainly not be able to open the doors for the AP classes in high school. And they, if they choose a STEM major when they go to college, it will be in a position of weakness. And they may abandon that major or leave the university entirely. And so to me, the, the looking at the problem in, in an integrated manner, sort of a system, system engineering type of viewpoint is important. And I couldn't agree more with Dr. Washington as well, because if you try and just make kids memorize things in elementary school, they'll, they'll quickly become bored. So you need to give them that experiential experience, correlate what they're learning in arithmetic, in fractions. I struggled uh, mightily <laughs> in learning fractions, but um, thankfully I was able to, with help, able to figure out how to apply those concepts to real world scenarios that I could understand. So it's tackling the entire problem, breaking it up into manageable pieces, but making sure that all of those pieces are integrated together so that we can de deliver the best STEM workforce for our nation that we're gonna need for that future, that we need now in fact, not, not just the future. Thank you, Ms. Lang. Um, I would, I would third, I guess, <laughs> what both Dr. Washington and Dr. Rivera have shared. Uh, I have had the fortunate opportunity to be in Title I schools my entire career, um, and uh, some of which were uh, extremely minority rich, uh, and that was an incredible opportunity because I was able to really see how all students learn and um, how you can't take a cookie cutter approach no matter where you are. Um, 
but that hands-on learning opportunity for students is necessary. Uh, I, as a teacher, was able to partner actually with one of the um, universities in my state when I was teaching, and I was able to engage in a year-long study on problem-based learning. And as a result of, and all the teachers in the cohort were all at Title I schools. And so we developed curriculum and content, and we looked at what that actually meant in the classroom. Uh, so for example, I was teaching fifth grade at the time, and my students, one of our science standards that they had to know was plant reproduction. They had to know the parts of the flower. They had to know how seeds germinated. They needed to know, understand the process. And so I had always shown them images, and we had, you know, gone out in the garden and looked at things, but I didn't really fully understand how engagement in problem solving and real world experience would invest their learning um, at a deeper level. And so as a result of that grant opportunity, I was able to uh, do uh, solve the B problem with my students. And, and to be science-y, uh, it's actually a current worldwide problem, if you weren't aware, the bee population is declining, right? So there's huge, huge uh, problems because of that with agriculture and um, the ability to maintain our food production levels. And so I told my students about this problem, who, as fifth graders, all they knew were that bees sting and run away. And so I, I told them about this problem, and we uh, engaged in serious application of standards. So we understood decimals and measurement at a real-world application. We went out and we looked at ratios of plants that were flower-producing to plants that were not flower-producing in our garden. And we understood the impacts of bee behavior, and they, they created, they almost worked faster than I could at creating the learning experience because they are all on, um, you know, they would get on an iPad or on a computer and they would, they're sharing images of magnified bee thoraxes that have pollen stuck on them. And they were so excited about what the real world application was uh, at a level that I couldn't have predicted. Um, in theory, it was there, but until I actually did it, I couldn't have predicted that that would happen. And so if, if research says, yes, this is good, and if teachers that have taught this way say, yes, I see it, um, the question kind of then turns to why aren't we doing that? And so I Googled this morning the word classroom, and uh, it is rows of desks, sage on the stage, teacher in the front, kids raising their hand, and what, we're, what we kind of unintentionally do is we are creating very polite and standard proficient memorizers who don't really know how to think outside the box if we don't give them the opportunity to engage that way. And so um, we have to really work intentionally to foster innovation for those 21st century skills. And they're in, uh, sometimes called the four C's, the creativity, communication, collaboration, and critical thinking. And if we aren't intentional about building that in, then we have some really great behaved children, but we don't create students who can then go into their secondary experience in high school and into their undergraduate experience in college or in a CTE program or into a doctoral research program 
and really think beyond what somebody has just given them. So I, I think creating that hands-on opportunity is really critical. Mr. Stevens? So I'm going to agree with my panelists as well, but I'm going to take it from a different standpoint here and talk about how I am in DOD as far as looking for that skill, that future skill that we need, and how can we develop that earlier and give them that real-world experience. So in my job, I'm looking at those skills, and I'm going, how can we help in that math and science, um, engineering, get that skill set, get that critical thinking earlier? Students, kids early on in their, in their age, they're kind of, can do anything. They'll, they'll think outside the box. So when you come to a job, you're told you got to do this, do it this way and that way. But in research, you need to think outside the box. You need to come up with something innovative. So what we have done recently in the lab is that, in the Air Force Research Lab, is that let's see, can we give these high school kids real-world problems? And have them come up with some and, and they won't even know that's a real-world problem and give it to them and, and develop those skills early on so they understand what, that, what they're doing in the classroom and how that relates to a real-world application. It's even to the fact that we have a, this program's been around, we have right now for three years, uh, four years, and we have a high school student who was publishing engineering magazine, a high school student. Wow. So you can see you're taking this concept of saying, let them not say anything. They can do anything still. And thinking outside the box to get that innovation is what's needed in the world today and keep that, that innovation going. Thank you. This next question is both for Ms. Lang and, and Dr. Washington. In this new economy, how can the U.S. cultivate the technically talented minds needed to resolve, to solve tomorrow's challenges with innovations in STEM? Ms. Lang? Sure. So I recently uh, sat down and tried to calculate how many kids I've had over the course of my career, and uh, it came out to about a thousand tiny people. Um, and at the end of the day, educators, all their, their goal is for these tiny people to grow up into highly functioning adults, right? Because we want them to engage with society. We want them to be uh, civically motivated. We want them to be uh, dynamically driven to be able to be change makers and help our, run our global world. So uh, I recently uh, heard Dr. Diane Suvain, the president of um, the National Science Board, she was discussing industries of the future. And um, she had a many, many poignant statements, but one of the things that very powerfully resonated with me uh, was this. She said, just as illiteracy is not considered a virtue, it can no longer be acceptable to be bad at math. So we have this whole society, and, and when I think back to my thousand tiny humans, um, I've had a lot of them, even as young as eight years old, who have sat in chairs in my room and said to me on day one or day 10 or day 100, I'm just not good at that. I don't know how to do math. I'm not good at science. I'm not a good reader. And somewhere along the line, Somebody told them that, or somebody had them feel that way. Um, one of my colleagues did a $100 math challenge where she challenged her kids. I think they were third graders. And every year they would come in, and she was the math teacher for her group. And she said, OK, guys, if you can tell me a job 
that doesn't use math, I will give you this $100 bill. And for third graders who just maybe a year before figured out that five pennies isn't worth more than a dollar because they figured out quantity, right, uh, and, and what value was, that was, that was gold to them. So they worked so hard to try to find a job that didn't use math. And nobody could figure one out. They're like, oh, we got it, the janitor. No, the janitor has to use math when they take their concentrated floor cleaner and add it to the water. So the point for her was that math is math. The math you do in third grade, that's adult math. Science is science. The scientific thinking you do in fourth grade, that's adult science. So uh, skills are skills. And as we look at um, how to extend the conversation on experimental practice in research and development, um, it was cited, it's been cited a lot lately that the United States is on a, pro a projection to be outspent by other countries within the next three years. Um, especially in experimental practice, we're already being outspent by China in our research and development. And so the idea is that if we need to ex extend that conversation on experimental practice all the way down into our high schools, into our middle schools, into our elementary schools, because when a five-year-old figures out that when I tip my glass over, the water runs, that's a, that's a property of fluidity that they can then apply as they're going through their education and when they're in their graduate degree in engineering. So it's very important that they, um, that we kind of are working hard to cultivate those technically talented minds. Thank you, Dr. Washington. So I'm gonna answer about like, how do we cultivate academically talented minds um, and just use the context of the Hispanic Survey Institutions Program, the HSI program at NSF. The way in which we built the program, we engaged stakeholders in, in a series of listening sessions um, anywhere from, we had one for the presidents, one for faculty and staff, and I said, we have to listen to the students. So I held one also for the students. So the feedback that we received from all of these stakeholder meetings actually helped inform and shape the program. It's a congressionally mandated program, but we had to fill it with something that would meet the needs of HSIs and also push innovations at HSIs. HSIs enroll 66% of Hispanic students and they also enroll like about 20% of African-American students. Put it in a context, HBCUs enroll 12%. So when you look at the melting, the, the diversity in HSIs, it's a highly diverse um, set of institutions, not just that about 50%, a little bit less, 46% are community colleges. So a large number of community colleges, but the student bodies at HSIs are really, it's a highly diverse context. So in developing the program, I said this program really has to inform the nation on how we do undergraduate STEM education in a, in a culturally diverse uh, setting, right? So that's kind of how I position the program. Some of the, uh, I remember when you had the listening session with the students, the students said, the professors, they don't know who we are. They are disconnected from us culturally and probably a myriad of other ways. So it, oftentimes in education, we think we need to fix the students. We need to train the students. The students are the issue. Where we were pleasantly, um, we, 
we were pleased that institutions came in with grants that we funded that focused on the faculty, that focused on the staff, and helped give them um, tools that they can use to facilitate learning in and outside of the classroom. We also heard from students who said they wanted to engage in research experiences early and often. If, uh, if we think about the context of what does our higher education landscape look like, uh, about 50% of African-American and Hispanic students, they start at community colleges. So that's gonna also be a challenge for um, HBCUs to look at what about, how do we develop these transfer pipelines also for HSIs. One of the priority areas in our program was that transition piece, the critical transition going from two year to four year, because oftentimes students will, will experience what we call transfer shock, right? You're a fish out of water, like, oh, what happened here? So how can we help equip the students? What, what is it about the ecosystem, those institutional barriers that aren't letting students go to their full potential? So we've also funded projects where students would engage in experiential, in research learning, at the two-year institutions, because a lot of two-year institutions are very teaching-focused and not research-focused. So we were able to facilitate and motivate projects, research projects, at, at two-year institutions to do research with students. Some of them also created internships with students. They created robust internships with students in partnerships with companies of the local communities. So, the, so I guess what I'm really saying is that when we think about what sort of skills that students will need? Obviously, everybody needs mathematics, right? I can say that as a mathematician, right? So <laughs> mathematics is everything, yeah, whether you like it or not. I also think moving forward, the skills that is going to be needed is, is programming, computer programming. Computers are taking, uh, they're creeping into every subject area. I had a friend of mine, she's a um, biologist, her husband's a physicist, and their kid is an English major, right? But, yeah, so she's like, ah. <laughs> yeah. But she said, but my kid called me. She's taking computational linguistics, and she knows more computer programming than I did. So it's not computer for com computer's sake just for STEM, but it's really computer for uh, across the disciplines. Uh, so math, computer science, and the third one is this idea of convergent thinking. So when we, we think about convergence, remember back in the day, we talk about interdisciplinary. I guess the closest would be transdisciplinary. But really convergent thinking is having these multiple disciplines come together in a real meaningful way to solve these hard problems, where we're not siloed into, here's that discipline or here's that discipline, where we can really move between disciplines. It's that in that interface where we can think about problems in a different way so we can think about hopefully creating solutions in a different way. So, yeah. Thank you. Math is money, so <laughs> it is. It does rule the world. <laughs> That's right. This next question is for both Dr. Rivera and Mr. Stevens. What are examples of current research partnerships that are helping to sharpen the technical research aptitude for students attending MSIs collectively? Mr. Stevens, we'll start with you. So um, within the um, DOD, we have, um, we have come up with three centers of excellence. Um, they're at Prairie View, North Carolina a t at Norfolk State. So those, they give you stuff for big data, cyber, and autonomy. 
So with that DOD Center of Excellence, we've been kind of working with those, those universities to bring in students at our different research labs, as well as we have faculty fellowship programs. We can bring in those faculties into the lab to even help those faculty members understand what the, the problem is within the lab while they have their students there in the lab. They can again get that insight to what we're looking for, as well as how to get the next part that my colleague always talks about is funding from the lab. So with that, we, we kind of use this as a mechanism to, to see what universities are offering, as well as see what the students can bring to the table and work on that next real world problem. As well as we had an initiative with um, FIU, where we had they give some cyber stuff with our Rome research, our information lab. And we brought in from that, from that um, partnership, they hired three students from that, PhD students from FIU to come up there and do research and working in the, the lab as civilian employees. So as we continue to develop that, as my role as um, trying to help engage, be better engaged and increase engagement with um, MSIs, I want to see that partnership grow, see how we can bring more students in as interns and then grow them into those areas where we, we see the future need to be. And that's good, yeah, it is a multidisciplinary need. Thank you. Dr. DiVetta? I'm going to expand my answer a little bit, and I'll apologize to you in advance if it begins to sound like a sales pitch. It's not intended to be, but I get excited about helping the kids so much. Um, we have a program at, at our conference um, called the um, Early Career Faculty Program. It's funded by the National Science Foundation, and we reach out to HBCUs and MSIs to bring in early career faculty members of diverse backgrounds, of course, uh, we bring them to the conference and we present to them the deans that are there from across the nation uh, to give them uh, career uh, guidance, um, to give them um, tips on how to manage the tenure process. It's so difficult to achieve tenure status at, uh, at universities. But it's important because we want these individuals to have those professor positions at MSIs at any university so that because they become the role models. And just like Dr. Washington was saying a little while ago, the kids could say, hey, I, that person doesn't look like me. They don't know me. In fact, I had those thoughts when, when I was in college. So we were motivated to help develop early career faculty in MSIs and HBCUs so that they can look like the students that they are teaching and secure those advanced tenure positions in their universities. That's, that's one program that, that, um, that we enjoy conducting. Second one is called the Educators Institute. And the thought behind that is that elementary school and high school teachers um, direct their passion to their students for nine months, and the students move on to the next level, and then the next one, eventually they graduate and the contact with the student is lost. The connection between the teacher and the student and, the, and ultimately the profession, the STEM profession that the, that the student will seek, that connection is lacking. So we bring 
educators from K through 12, we bring them to the conference. Again, this is funded through um, corporate foundations and uh, direct corporate funding, in fact. So we'll bring in um, 100, 150 students from around the nation, also from uh, underrepresented schools, and we expose them to the students that are there at the conference, but we expose them to the STEM professionals. And we create that interaction, that networking, so that the teachers are inspired when they see the fruits of their labor. Many years later is, is when they see the fruits of their labor, but here at the conference, they get immediate feedback. And they, they are able to engage with the professionals and ask, why did you choose a STEM career? What did you learn in elementary school that caused that spark? What was it that prevented you or delayed you in seeking STEM careers? All this information is provided firsthand to the teachers so that when they go back to the classroom, they are reinvigorated and they can apply some of that feedback to motivate the students. The third area is a poster competition that we conduct. It is um, to help the students develop writing skills, um, presentation skills, and interaction skills with STEM professionals. They have to put a high quality poster together that describes the work that they've done in science, mathematics, or some research project, and they have to present it to a judge and to various STEM professionals that are walking around the poster area. And so again, that direct interaction, direct feedback to the student helps them develop their skills, ultimately when they're in industry and or government, um, applying the, uh, the academic knowledge, but now also the soft skills that are also so important in order to succeed. Thank, Thank you. you. That actually leads directly to Mr. Stevens. We need to ask, since the Air Force has invested in, in the NSF Early Career Faculty Symposium and Research Poster Competition during the Great Minds in STEM Conference, what have been some of the return on investments from, from this partnership? So from that partnership, um, the Air Force Research Lab has been able to increase how many people know about the how to apply to be for grants, how to, um, what is needed for proposals, as well as the opportunities for their students. As far as coming in as an intern, um, coming in for getting their scholarships, um, their master's or PhD paid for, as well as um, how they can even get equipment. Also, um, um, teach people who want to be faculty members, we also provide money for that. So it's just getting that awareness out there. The poster session is more or less of a way that we can, we do this, we start this on early on with um, K through 12 initiatives, where we go to the International Science Engineering Fair, Joint Science Humanity Symposium, and we're, we're providing an opportunity for those students there at in the poster session to be in contact with STEM professionals. And you talk about some world-class STEM um, professionals that come here and judge these poster sessions and tell them, okay, this is where you need help. And they sit there where we guide them in an area to help them be the best STEM professional they can be. If it's not with us, it's with industry. It, we're, we're trying to help make this the best STEM professional out there for the U.S. government, U.S. as a whole. 
So we look at it differently and we want to continue that partnership and see how we can keep going that. Great. Thank you. And if it, if they go to industry, they'll still support the mission critical initiative. So that is, great. that is correct. <laughs> Cause um, people don't understand is when we come to use like any event and start recruiting, the government is the one that funds Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop. So you have to think we're sitting here Tell you, you may not be working for us directly, but you really are. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. We're all one big ecosystem, definitely. <laughs> this next question is for both Dr. Washington and Mr. Stevens again. Besides ABED accreditation, what other factors should students consider in choosing a competitive STEM degree program that focuses on developing a research mindset? Dr. Washington. So... Obviously, I'm a mathematician, right? Um, but with the, you would, if you're going to go for engineering, you want the school to be ABED accredited, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's just get that out the way first, right? It's just kind of a no-brainer. But you also want to look at uh, what other experiences can one have? Because there have been studies that show that it's not necessarily the school that makes the student. It's the student that lives the experience and optimizes and you know, travels through and does all of these fantastic things, which culminates to a wealth of knowledge at, at the end upon graduation. So they, some students, what did I consider? I'll just talk from a personal perspective. When I was a junior in high school, I'm from Southwestern Indiana, Evansville, Indiana. We did a um, school trip to Atlanta, Georgia on a Friday afternoon when it was warm outside. We visited the Atlanta University Center and we were like, Oh my gosh, look at all these hot people. <laughs> I'll keep it gender neutral. They're like, oh my gosh. Everybody's like driving Mercedes and BMWs. <laughs> and it, you know, and without thinking, right? I was what, 17, 16? We were like, they're driving BMWs and they have all these nice clothes and they're not drug dealers. <laughs> that was the experience I was coming from, right? So it, I was just like, wow. This, well, no pun intended. This is a different world here, right? You'll get that later. You're listening to HBCUs, HSIs, and TSUs. How do we partner for greater research opportunities? A professional development seminar featuring Bertha Haro, Dr. Juan Rivera, Brian Stevens, Dr. Talitha Washington, and Alexandra Lang. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bayes STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So I actually ended up going to um, Spelman. I don't even think I knew it was a woman's college, but it was just like, wow, these are some really cool people. This looks good. It may be a little bit superficial, but it, it was a draw that it was an experience that I did not have that I was looking to have. Being in an environment where I didn't have to be that other one, the only one in that honors class or, or some sort of outlier. I was just a normal person and nobody really cared, which was great, right? That's, that's what I wanted. And I also had a curriculum that was crafted around the African diaspora from a female perspective, which was even better. 
So if we're looking at other factors, it's kind of student by student. What does a student want? What sort of experiences do they want? Because it's, it's like you can take, you know, to use the, the biology, you can take a seed, right? But if the seed and the environment aren't good matches, how is that seed supposed to then grow, right? And so the, the seed could depend on the soil and vice versa, what have you. And fertilizers could help too, but too much fertilizer is also a bad thing. It could kill it. So it's looking at case by case. What does the student want to do? What do they want to explore? How do they want to grow? How do they want to challenge? If you're interested in double majoring, is that an option at the school? My oldest one, she didn't want to go too far. So she's a computer science major at Howard. She's a junior and she's, she's working her way through. She's enjoying it. My youngest one, she's like, nope, I'm going to do my engineering. I'm going to be going somewhere else. But that's, you know, kind of her path. She's articulating that path. But I push and say, what about this? Have you thought about this aspect? Have you thought about that aspect? Well, this school may be stronger in these arenas, but you could also switch majors, right? That, that's also an option as well. So looking for schools for the opportunities that lie within the major, but also the opportunities that lie around the major, either it's through double majoring, um, it could be a study abroad experience, it could be proximity to the hill, it could be proximity to a, a in University of Connecticut perspective, it was Horse Barn Hill, right? We had cows. <laughs> so it, it, it all depends on what sort of experience is the student looking for and also what can the school provide. So with the, you know, I've done a lot of work in the HSI space where you have Hispanic serving institutions really asking the question, what does it mean to be serving the students? What does it mean to create an institution that really is serving the students? I'm not talking about, you know, have it your way. But when the student walks in, do we have a welcoming environment? Are we inviting the student to join with us, with the institution in our learning spaces? Or are we creating these obstacles and barriers to weed out people, right? So that in the HSI space, there's, there are a lot of conversations around how do we serve the students? I, as an HBC faculty member, would like the HBCs to join in with that conversation and say, how are we serving African-American students? It's not as simple as, let's give students more scholarship money, they'll stick around, that's enough, right? You can't do that, everybody, you're shaking your head, right? People wanna go where there's value, right? So how can we contribute value to the student experience? Is it through, do we have proper health services on campus, either in uh, medical, uh, mental health? Are we providing those services? How are we linking the dorm experiences to the academic experiences to create that robust connection between where students live and also where they play in the classroom, so to speak? And then how are we creating, connecting the student experience with internships, with externships and intra-internships where you do an intern on campus? Like how are all these pieces connecting together that the, in the ecosystem that the student is experiencing as they go through the institution? So it may not be as simple as looking at a website. It may not be as simple as even a visit. Sometimes it's, it's experiencing, it's asking questions. Why did you like a school? Why, what, why was this important? And looking at really what are the values of the school and how does that resonate with the students' values? In some cases, I think as institutions, I like to speak from an institutional perspective. Institutions, we need to rethink how are we portraying our value system? How are we conveying our value system to the students? And then how are we joining with students to go along that educational journey with us instead of, you know, kind of pushing people away. So. 
holistic approach. Thank you. Wow, that was good. And I agree <laughs> with everything you said. So I'm going to add to it just a little bit. Um, in my former job as a recruiter for the Air Force Research Laboratory, I would always ask students, what is your dream job? So the quicker they understand what their dream job is, if you can get them early on at the K through 12 area and figure out what they enjoy doing, because when you have your dream job and you're going to work, it's not, it's not work then. So they're going there to do something they enjoy. So when you're looking at a university, a student know what their dream job is, you look and say, okay, how can that university help fulfill me getting to my dream job? If it's in research development, if they want to do something in cyber or radar technology, um, um, hyperscience, you look and see how does that university fit into where you want to do that research in and what opportunities have, and have they provided to their students beforehand and what's that connection with them and industry. I know I'm going to use a personal experience for me. When I was growing up, I was the only one in honors classes as Af only African-American male sitting there going, it's only me. While my friends were going off doing the fun things. I'm sitting there in the class looking around going, where's, the, where's someone like me? <laughs> but during that time, it's like, I wanted to go work for NASA was my dream job. So what happened, I went to Embraer Aeronautical University, where I knew that NASA was going there constantly in, in Florida to pick out aerospace engineers. So you do your research, just like you do when you go to a career fair, you need to do your research on a company you do your research on the, on the school. And that's what um, Dr. Washington was talking about. You do your research to see how is that, that fit into what you want to be in, in the future. So that's it in a nutshell. I don't want to go. I can go on a whole, whole spill, but. No, that's, that's great. <laughs> Absolutely. Research. And now with, um, since we're no longer using pagers, <laughs> we can do research everywhere. <laughs> This next question is both for Ms. Lang and, and Dr. Rivera. What are elements of a robust K-12 university, K-12 university industry partnership that is training K-12 students, especially high school students, to embark on a STEM research and development pathway? So, I'm in a very unique position right now, being a legislative fellow in the Senate. And uh, part of that means that I get to write legislation and staff my senator, but it also means that I get to meet with a lot of constituents, both from my state or from my senator's state and from um, the nation. So large industry, uh, large federal agencies. I, I pinch myself daily about the people I get to sit across the table from. It's been an incredible experience. And one of the things that I've heard over and over again from every person I've sat at the table with, including what's been uh, shared by this panel, is that if we don't have hands-on experiences made available to students, not just in high school, but in middle school and in elementary, all the way down, um, then we are doing them a disservice to their career readiness. Industry is spending an exorbitant amount of money upskilling. They are spending a lot of money bringing people on because there's just not a um, readiness scale in some cases. Some industries, it's not as, as evident, but in a lot, of op a lot of instances, it's happening. And so when I 
thought back to what it was that inspired me as an educator to enable hands-on opportunities for my students. And I had that grant opportunity I shared with you that impacted my pedagogical practice a lot. Um, but I remember back to the first time I, as a learner, had a hands-on experience. And it was when, in my undergrad, um, I had an environmental science class, which is not the class that jumps to the front of your mind as the coolest thing you could enroll in, perhaps. Um, but I, from that professor, we electroshocked in a river above and below a water treatment facility to understand the impact of pollution on an ecosystem. We engaged with him in his research that he was doing his longitudinal research. He'd been doing it for over a decade, studying the salamander keystone species in a mountain lake where we put on chest waders and mucked through the mud on the side of this lake and caught salamanders and checked them for dye uh, because each different dye location was a different year that he had caught that particular salamander so that we could track um, the population of that species. Uh, keystone species being one of the indicators of a healthy or a unhealthy environment. Um, he encouraged collaboration among my classmates. He gave us hard problems to talk about, problems that were open-ended that did not have answers. Um, and he is absolutely one of the reasons why when I entered the classroom, I knew that those types of experiences were necessary for my students. It didn't matter if they were five or seven or 15. Um, they needed to understand the power of hands-on engagement. And so I think to establish a really you know, uh, strong partnership from the K-12 into the institutes of higher education and then into industry. Uh, it doesn't, there's no necessarily correct starting point other than yesterday. Um, so as long as we can engage our kids in that way, then we will grow as a nation and grow as a global society to solve some of those big problems. Great, thank you. Dr. Rivera. I guess I'll rely once again on an example of a program. Um, it's called Viva Technology. It targets middle school, um, typically middle school students, um, sixth through eighth grade. Um, it's basically a very large cheering and enthusiastic pep rally for science and mathematics that's conducted um, at a particular school um, in an underrepresented community. The event uh, accommodates up to about 130, 150 students, and they're broken up into teams of five. Each student is assigned a university STEM major from the local university. And we wanted to partner that each team with a young aspiring engineer, obviously to reduce the age difference between the kids and somebody like me, um, so that they could uh, interact a lot easier. The university students gain skills in interpersonal relationships, talking to the kids and teaching them about science and mathematics. 
We partner with the university very closely, in fact. That's where we get the, the, uh, the students. Um, we partner with the school system itself to get permission to conduct these programs at the campus. Um, and, and then, of course, with the principal and, and the teachers. Oh, and, and we partner with the parents as well. We'll spend, um, oh, um, half a day uh, with the parents, maybe the day before or that week, and we talk to them many times in Spanish uh, and talk to them about the value of a STEM education, the value of trying to get into those AP classes in high school, but to do so, they have to excel in the science and math subjects while they're in elementary school. So we're trying to set up that pipeline and give them the information so that the, the kids ultimately can, can end up with a, a STEM profession. It's, it's quite a popular program. Uh, typically it's funded, as I said, by corporations um, and uh, some DOD organizations. Each program is tailored to the sponsor's product line. If it's an aerospace company, the program, it's a pep rally about aerospace. Um, with Shell Oil, uh, they sponsored Aviva Technology during Super Bowl week, and we taught the kids the physics of a field goal. And of course, we had all sorts of props and examples of how to, how to, how to do a field goal. So it's a lot of fun. It's a, like I said, it's a big pep rally, but it's an example of how we are uh, connecting the, the uh, middle school kids with role models that are, are engineers at the local university. Thank you. And we actually have some of our speakers here from our K-12 program. So thank you everyone that has participated. Dr. Washington, from your experience, what is a current best practice that is successfully engaging Hispanic, Black, and Native American students enrolled in MSIs in research collaboratives? So in the undergraduate space, um, there's something that is becoming a, a lot more popular. The acronym is CURES, C-U-R-E-S, Course-Based Undergraduate Research Experiences, where essentially you take the research, right? So we have summer research programs that students can participate in and get paid. Um, NSF funds those. But the idea is that some students may or may not want to do in the summertime. How can we then ingrain that into the classroom experience or into the laboratory experience where the students would learn via an inquiry approach, developing the best practice of research versus just here, do this, and then you get this output. So implementing a CURES, course-based undergraduate research experience has shown um, to be effective. But there's also all of these other, you know, some people say soft skills, but some people don't like that. Professional skills, essential skills, whatever you want to call it, right? The, to engage students. How do you cultivate a student's sense of belonging, that they belong in that lab or they belong in your classroom? How do you have them develop grit, persistence, right? Because things will get hard. So how do you cultivate persistence in the students in that just because you didn't do so well here doesn't mean that you can't uh, keep going on. I know when I entered uh, Spelman my first semester, I tested into pre-Cal 2. Second semester, I took a proofwriting class and I was failing, so I withdrew. If I didn't have, maybe I was insane, I'm not sure, but I think I had a, a large sense of hard-headedness um, at that, well, maybe I still do, but I had, it was more inflated, maybe not self-managed, 
But I had a sense of hardheadedness. I was like, eh, whatever, you know. Just, yeah. But then the next, but if I didn't have that, eh, whatever, you know, I'll just do it again next year. If I, and it was hard. I remember as a sophomore in college, I was complaining to a friend of mine who was, he was in Morehouse, Eric, and he was engineering. I was like, this is hard. I don't think I can do this math major stuff. He was like, you want a job, don't you? I was like, yeah, just stick with it. It's like, okay. Mm-hmm. But the idea of him conveying to me, persist, you know, have that grit. You belong here. You know, just, just stay with it. So a year later, I took that proofwriting class. I got an A. So that taught me that I... The first time I did it, I may not have been prepared. So it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It's a not yet. Oftentimes, we'll have students when they hit that first, I don't know what you call a slap in the face of a grade. And you're like, oh, my gosh, my life is over. I'm stupid. All those bad things that all these people told told me, they're all true. And then it, it can have this, it, it can spiral, right? Yeah, it can spiral if you don't have friends to kind of put that in check. If you don't have faculty to put that in check, because as a faculty member, I'll have students come in my classroom. I remember this one student, college algebra. She was like, I'm not going to learn. Quite, it was like factoring, right? I was like, you're going to factor. You're going to factor by group and you're going to do it now, right? I'm, I was a coach, so I can be a little <laughs> bit intense sometimes. She's like, oh, I'm not going to do this. And then finally, at the end, I was like, look, you're going to do this? You know, I'm going to, you know, stand on you. I expect, high, I have high expectations and I will give you high support, but I expect you to do this. After the semester was over, she, you know, fought all along the way. She, she said, thank you for pushing me. In high school, she was able to slide. Before she was able to slide, that expectation was not on her. A lot of students that come to me at Howard, they don't have that expectation that they will excel, that they will have a high level of excellence because of how other people see them. Not because of how they see the value that they bring, but because of, you know, racial stereotypes, those sorts of things and categorizing. But when they come to me, I'm like, no, nah, I don't care what they say. You're going to sit in my class. You're going to be on the front. You're going to enjoy it. And we're going to have fun. And I'm going to tell bad jokes. That's it. <laughs> I have a lot of bad, like, math science jokes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're really bad. But, uh, the, but it's, it's like, I don't know, we have a responsibility if we have been given much, right? And I know I work really hard. I'm not going to tell you about my 12-hour days. That's, you know, because I have a new gig. But I mean, I work really hard, but I also recognize that it's also hard for the young folks to come who come through the, the pipeline, so to speak, who come through the different tracks. And, and to not undervalue that, that people are doing a lot with a little bit of resources. And how can I create an ecosystem where each student can thrive? Each student can find their, their science voice, their bio voice, their chem, their comp sci, that sort of voice, so that they can figure out their path. Because it, it is where I think we're all a work in progress. So how can we help each other in this network, in this ecosystem that we live? Because, I, you know, we're running at a deficit right now in producing STEM majors. If we, I mean, because, I mean, think about it. Our academies were not built for us. They were built for the white males to succeed. So that was back in the 80s. You had all the white males in the higher ed space. So you could go with that. We had the pipeline into STEM. But now people are freaking out because that base is no longer there. We need to rethink how we're doing things. We need to rethink how we engage people in STEM. And we need to essentially broaden this in a very serious way. As you, I mean, it's a national security issue in, in my mind and also a robustness of the nation. But that's going to be our, our real challenge. How can we rethink STEM, keep it at high level, 
right? We're not compromising any sort of quality or robustness in the field, but how can we make it a place where everybody can just hop in and do their thing, do their STEM thing? Absolutely. Thank you. And self-identity definitely goes a long way. I have this final question for Mr. Stevens, and then we're going to open it up to anyone in the audience that may have questions. So, Mr. Stevens, can you provide an example of a U.S. Air Force R1 institution, an MSI research partnership that has provided enhanced mission capabilities? So um, within AFRL, we have a program called Minority Leaguers Program, where we, we partner HBCUs, MSIs with tier one institutions like Georgia Tech um, and so forth. So with that program, it's been a couple of those that um, we were, have been able to help HBCUs partner with a tier one institution like that's out there. So when they come in, we bring them in for a summer. We have the professors come in, like I mentioned before, as well as students. The students come in and do poster sessions with other um, students across um, from other institutions around the world. We bring them in um, the country. And they, what they do is they, they have a chance to people, there was world-class scientists, engineers, go around and talk to them. They're not being judged, but talk to them and tell and ask those questions. Tell me about your project. And they get guided even more. Even uh, the generals within the lab come around and talk to them. I've been there a couple of times and talked to them and said, what is your, you know, I'm always, I'm a recruiter then, my recruiter hat comes on. And I'm like, what's your dream job? What do you, where do you see yourself at? What do you want to do? What do you, how do you, do you want to pursue your PhD? And go and have them go a little bit more in detail. So from that, we, that partnership was not supposed to be, it's supposed to be help build up minority institutions. But now we're going, okay, we're building up that, that, um, that institution, HBCR, or HSI, but now it's like, how, how are we hiring any of those students into the government? And how can we do that better? Because we're already building that relationship early on. We should be able to tap into those students when they come into the lab, tell them about the opportunities, tell them about the DOD Smart Scholarship for Service Program, tell them about the other opportunities within the lab where we can have you come in, work for the summer, have you go back and, it's just the opportunities that are available for them, to them that they are not aware of. Um, we even did, I know we talked about this earlier, but I want to touch on this a little bit more when we, the lab has done so with two-year institutions. So that's a, a, a part where we do not really, as I think as um, a workforce, we don't look at those institutions. But what we did is we went to a two-year institution in, in Ohio and started recruiting those kids at a two-year institution. We paid for their, their um, associate's degree, again, transferred and helped them transfer to a four institution in Ohio, and they was able to get their bachelor's degree. We powered that out. In that pilot program, we have 14 kids, um, two of them that make it, but the rest of them are still there. They're part of the Air Force. They're not in, they may not, some are in the lab, some of them are in other parts of the Air Force, in the Air Force Life Cycle Management Center, or in the National Aerospace Intelligence Center, but it's an untapped market, um, market there that we tapped into and said, this can't help. Because like it was mentioned earlier, a lot of minority students go there, are underserved people go there sure. first because they have, they're doing other things, taking care of family or, or whatever that case may be. And they're going there to, to get that start. And we tapped into it and was able to, to find a pipeline there as well. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. 
and that is helping students think beyond their current dreams. Correct. Wow. We do have an open session for any anyone in the audience that wishes to address. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Hill. I also work at Wright Pat Air Force Base at the Affitt Institute of Technology as a lab supervisor. So I understand lab process and the student thing. Uh, my question is, and I'll use the example of my son. He went to state, as you say, go to the do the presentations as far as the science fairs, the poster board. So he made it to, he was the only student out of the Dayton region that made it to state and won, but wasn't able to represent the state of Ohio because Wayne High School, Super Heights is not connected to STEM. So my question is, is there a process or a program or something that you're looking at to connecting with schools that are not STEM certified? Because there are also kids out there that are missing out. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that. So um, thinking around the idea of STEM literacy, there is a large scale disagreement over acronyms in the education world. I've heard STEM, and then the next school down the road says, oh, well, we're STEAM. And then the next school down the road says, well, we're STREAM, because we're incorporating reading. And then there have been some schools that say, well, we're STREAMS, because social studies is part of it. And really what they're talking <laughs> about is a transdisciplinary approach to real world problem solving. But there is a disparity between uh, around the term STEM in the K-12 ed space. Um, some schools are saying they're STEM because they're teaching science and math, and you have to teach science and math because it's in your state standards. So what, to what level are we engaging our students first? And then what are we doing as a nation to help clarify that? Um, the Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, put out a, a five-year strategic STEM plan. As a result of that, they have a, a co-STEM task force that is partnering multiple federal agencies, NSF is one of them, to talk about what this STEM idea is for our nation. Um, and as far as a STEM certified school goes, there is not a national standard. There's not even a state standard in a lot of states. And, and some states, if you pay the money to do the online thing, then you are STEM certified. In other states, you have to go through a rigorous panel and review process. And so I think before we can talk about what those uh, pathway, pathways really look like, we as a nation need to kind of develop a more robust standard definition of what are we talking about when we say the word STEM, STEAM, STREAM, STREAMS, whatever it is. Because the, the argument over an acronym is, is doing a, a disservice to our students. Okay. Well, I'm thank glad that I wasn't playing a part two, but thank you, because that brings on my part two question. Is uh, uh, also with the uh, with the STEM process. Uh, I served nine and a half years overseas in Japan, and I know that the system we have in place of testing our children is just a test. Same thing. My son scored 28 points above the state average in Ohio in the sixth grade for math, and he went to regular school. So what I've noticed in the society of Japan, you start testing and they start to build you on a career path as far as when you take the test as meaning. So if you test high in, say, logistics, you're going that path. 
Doesn't matter if the school's across the street from you, you got to jump on the train and go to the school for logistics. Same with engineering, mathematics, whatever. So your peers is in our schools are set up now. You don't get math, so you're a CD student with those who are still mindset of getting straight A's. But on that system, you're with your peers. If you're good in logistics, all of you are AB students. If you're good in math, all of you are AB students. So is the state or federal government working on a process to make the test scores more career oriented to help our children develop their, their careers and not jobs? And I'm done. So one, one of the challenges is when your child gets a job and has a career, that job does not really exist right now, right? So if we think about jobs of the future and what work would look like in the future, when your child gets out there, there's a guess as to what that will be. There are um, job tracking data systems that probably are outdated at the, at the moment, right? So how do we track people and, and position people for jobs? But that's one of the, the challenges is to how do we best prepare the people for the jobs of the future and the, because technology is gonna impact it in multiple ways. And then if, if people get the jobs, that's one thing that the Convergence Accelerator NSF is looking uh, to, to motivate funding for, is how do you do this idea of reskilling or upskilling people who are in the workforce that need to gain new skills because technology is now coming in disrupting the system and you need other skills to actually manage and negotiate the, the workplace. But how do you do this at scale? not just a one or two or, or, or a dozen, that sort of thing, but how do you do this for a workforce at, at scale? So that, that's one aspect. One second aspect is you could come to Maryland. I'm teasing. <laughs> um, so my kids attend, my kids went to a pub, public school, public high school, mostly minority, um, where it's an academy high school. You go into an academy, engineering, biosciences, IT, or um, global studies. Every elective course would be in that academy. That meant we had a horrible band, right? Because the fine arts, right? But, you know, my son, my oldest one did the IT academy, so she ended up taking computer programming every semester. My um, son did the engineering magnet academy. And then my youngest one is doing biosciences. She's a junior in high school, but it actually takes courses at the community college. So in two years, she'll have her associate's degree in biology and before she gets her high school diploma. So they're, and again, this is a mostly minority school, right? So it, it depends sometimes where you live, how you live. When I lived in Indiana, I recognized the STEM limited experience my students had, my kids had as students. I see my students too. So I developed a summer program, a one-week program for middle school students. It was a summer math and research training in Evansville. That's what I did. It was for middle school, mostly African-American. They had a high school mentors. So there are different uh, ways you can go about doing it. If you want to see it done, I always say roll up your sleeves and do it. At, at my church back home, they have bits and bytes uh, program and computing for the students. So if there's something that really is interesting that you see as a need, do it. Yes, yeah, I'm on the uh, school committee as parent committee, but on the booster club run And we're working apart with it. I mentioned program in our church. There you go. Programmers for uh, Legos. But you're in Ohio, proximity yeah. to Ohio State. What's your What's your neighboring institution? Uh, University of Dayton, Rice State University, Central State University, and Sinclair University. Okay, because I have colleagues at Ohio State. 
who may then can hook you up with different if you want connections there. Excellent. That's what this session is about. We are out of time. So, Mr. Miello, if you want to say your question, but... I'll say my question and maybe we could talk about it offline. Yes. Um, um, going around the federal government, I found Department of Education, FAA, didn't realize you had to be an ABET accredited school of engineering or computer science to offer a job. And uh, HSIs, I think there's 33 right now that are ABET accredited out of the 400 and some. And uh, HBCUs, there's only 11 uh, HCBUs that have an ABET accreditation. Um, do we know of any programs that are trying to broaden that ability uh, with the federal, federal government? Because uh, uh, it's going to limit the number of minorities uh, to enter engineering if they're not where our students are going to school. So let's, that was my question. Let's pause on that and we'll take that discussion in the hallway. <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us. In closing, I would say that we have learned that education is not learning the facts, but it is training the mind to think. And that's by Albert Einstein. And we do have our Albert Einstein fellow here as one of our panelists. Fellow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HBCUs, HSIs, and TSUs. How do we partner for greater research opportunities? A professional development seminar. Featuring Great Minds in STEM representatives, Director Bertha Haro and Dr. Juan Rivera. Chief of Workforce Strategy and Data Intelligence for the U.S. Air Force, Brian Stevens. Program Director for the National Science Foundation, Dr. Talitha Washington and Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow from the office of Senator Jackie Rosen, Alexandra Lang. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.